0: We're going to start with verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> That's all we're doing. One verse today. Um, this is the first time I think I've ever preached on one single verse I've preached on like 20 verses at once, and I've preached on 5, 10, but never 1. So we'll see how it goes. In the book of Ruth, going back, we found a certain number of themes. One of the themes was providence. Another, hesed. Another, redemption. All of these themes flowed through the book in different ways. In 1 John, we have seen the reason for John writing the letter, and that is that those ...who are reading it would have fellowship with the apostles and with the disciples of Christ... ...and that those reading would have fellowship with God himself. In this way, the joy of those who first proclaimed the gospel to these different congregations would be complete. You can go back, actually, Betsy. We're not there yet. <laughs> Sorry. That's, no, we're not. We're Go back to the verse. Just stay on the verse for a minute. It is at this point in the letter that we turn from the reason for the writing the letter... ...to the main theme of the letter... Of all the different themes to run in this epistle, the theme we encounter now will be the most significant for the letter as a whole. It's for this reason I decided to focus all of today's sermon on this one verse. That means that the sermon is not going to be quite as long as most other sermons. But my hope is that the emphasis will be placed for the future as we continue on through the epistle. Also, when I first wrote that sentence, I had not finished the sermon yet. It's the same length as every other sermon I've written, so just so everyone's aware, it's going to be. The, uh, yeah, we. Sorry, <laughs> not getting out early. Sorry. So, verse five. Let's go back to verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. A few weeks ago, we saw how John and the apostles and disciples of Christ were witnesses to Christ. We especially saw this in the way he expressed himself in the opening few verses. For example, he said, Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands. In verse 2, he continues with, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. Verse 3, he continues the same theme. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So throughout the opening few verses of the letter we see John specifically enforcing this firsthand knowledge of Christ who is the life and because of this firsthand knowledge of Christ they have firsthand knowledge of God himself. It is with this in mind we come to verse 5 where John specifies what it means for them to have heard Christ. In particular he says the message we have heard from him The message is directly from Christ, which his disciples and apostles were to preach and to teach to the world. That they have heard it from Christ further emphasizes these first-hand experiences with Christ, which the early Christians shared while Christ was still with them before and after the resurrection. It is this message from Christ which the followers of Christ continue to proclaim to this congregation that he's writing to and the others. But the question is, what is the message that they were told to proclaim? What was it that the life had that the life had taught them? That is what has Christ taught them that was so essential. In a world where so many are focused on being healthy and wealthy, one would imagine that that's the emphasis. But the truth is, that is not the message, not at all. Instead, the message is simply this, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This theme, which we are now experiencing in the book of 1 John, will have the greatest impact on the entirety of the gospel of the letter. The letter, not the gospel. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Much of this letter, especially the verses immediately after this, hangs on this statement, this thought concerning God. And now we can partially see why it is so important that we spend a little bit more time on this one verse here, because of how significant it is for the rest of the book. Now we are to wonder, what does it mean that God is light? What does light mean? Does it literally mean light? Is God literally like a beam from the sun? Or is he the sun itself, which produces light? Well, we would have to say that this isn't what John intended when he wrote this, since, as we know, God came in human form through the life, which is Jesus Christ. So the most literal understanding of light cannot be what is in mind. This is especially true when we contrast Christianity, even Judaism, with the different pagan religions of the day. Many of the pantheistic Pagan religions would claim certain gods or goddesses in context of the heavenly bodies. An example from Yarbrough, who's, who's one of the commentators I'm using, is Syrian Baal, who was linked to the sun, and his female consort, who happened to be linked to the moon. This kind of understanding is not like, nothing like, the God of the Bible. Not only is he called a spirit, but he is also known to be personal. Likewise, he has made himself known personally through his Son, Jesus Christ. Also, while the heavens declare the glory of God, according to the psalmist, this is as far as the heavens go. They are not like God, because God is completely and totally unique. We do not worship the stars before because they glorify God, but we worship the God whom the stars themselves glorify. Another way of looking at God as the light, is reflective of the Qumran community, which was established during this time period in the first century and a little bit prior to it. Um, And just so we're on the same page, the Qumran community is associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, which were found in the late 1940s. And just so you know, that finding had a huge impact on biblical studies. Anyway, the point is that the majority of the scrolls found there in these caves were Old Testament texts. However, there were a few which focused on a particular Jewish sect which used phrases such as the disciples of light and a strong eschatological end times emphasis on the light defeating darkness. But even there, while there are certainly similarities between Christianity and this Qumran community, there are strong differences as well, which we're not going to get into. The point is, is that there's, a very, there's this light and dark contrast that we see during the time period. Um, instead, though, let's focus on what it is that John himself is likely, likely referencing when informing us that God is light. The best way to interpret it is to consider the Old Testament which John would have in mind since he had a strong Jewish religious heritage, since that's what he would consider himself. In the Old Testament, we see many things concerning God and light. For example, God brings forth light in Genesis 1 and 2 and gives his people light in the follow, in, um, to follow in the Exodus. Likewise, David even poetically describes one who is righteous and fear of the Lord as being the light. Of the sunrise, this implies that this light of God can be spread, so to speak, by individuals. We, when we consider other Old Testament texts, we see the theme of God and light exemplified further. Whether it is Ezra and how God gives light through the releasing them through bondage, or Job, where God's light is antithetical to darkness, um, as we see here in First John, the prophets also use light extensively. In particular, Isaiah who uses the expression of light at least 24 times. Yarbrough rightly recognizes that many of these occurrences of light in Isaiah are within the final chapters, chapters 40 through 66, which are often typologies and prophecies that the New Testament writers use to associate with Jesus. For John to proclaim that God is light then is a reflection of God's holiness, purity, and moral excellence as we see within these passages. If this is the case, if the focus of light is reminiscent of God's character, then it is apparent that the overall effect this has on the letter is significant. It means that what John seeks to change, what he writes against, is a false teaching of who God is, and therefore a false response to God. It should not surprise us, in the next few verses, we will see how this plays out with these particular congregations. For now, however, the focus of God is light is meant to show us his character. And once we understand his character, we can better understand how we are to relate and to respond to this God and his light. Now, in regards to the letter, John ends the theme by recognizing that if God is light, then the opposite cannot be God, and that is darkness. If the light of God represents his character and attributes, then darkness must be the opposite of this. Darkness implies unholiness, immorality, and impurity. These things are not present in the character of God, especially not if God is truly the God of light. Now, it's with this um, that we go to the main point. And with all this in our mind, that we come to the conclusion of the grand theme. God is light and there is no darkness in him. The question we want to ask ourselves for next week is, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for the church corporately and the church individually? If God is light, then how are we to respond to him in our lives? All of this will be discussed in the next few verses of John. But for now... The main focus is on God himself and the revelation of this message for us, which again, that God is light. So it's with this we go to our final points, or our application points, I should say. And the first one is antithesis versus synthesis. <laughs> all right, I'm going to say a brief thing. <laughs> first of all, yeah, I wrote this, and a lot of this comes from Francis Schaeffer. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Francis Schaeffer before. Um, and his, in particular, his books, End of Reason, um, The God Who Is There, The God Who Is There, and He Is Not Silent, those three books in particular. And so I want you to kind of focus with this, because he, he makes a lot of good points. I don't quote him at all, but that's where I get the idea from. Something that occurs within this single verse we are looking at is a term called antithesis as opposed to synthesis. I bring this up because I believe it is important for us to understand these philosophical terms which have such an impact on our present culture. Most people do not realize the difference between the two. And because of this, do not understand the current state the culture is in and why the culture believes what it is that it believes. We as a church... As the body of Christ would do well to understand it so we can better communicate the Christian faith to those who are outside of the church. So that said, what do these two terms mean? Well, let's begin with antithesis. An antithesis statement would be, A is not non-A. In other words, A will always be A and never B, never C, or never D. Um, For thousands of years... This was the standard way of thinking. When we consider something like morality, truth, ascetic beauty, things like these, we would have thought in ways of morality is not lying, or to be moral is not to cheat, to be moral is to not steal, to be moral is to not commit adultery, um, or truth is always truth and never non-truth. Regardless of the person, these were the ways in which these things were understood, Unfortunately, things changed around the 18th and 19th centuries. Instead of thinking in terms of antithesis, slowly the culture began to think in terms of synthesis. This means that A could be either A, or B, or C, or D, or all the above, or some. So if we use the example we find for antithesis we would have a problem, wouldn't we? What we consider morality can be either lying or not lying, or cheating or not cheating, or stealing or not stealing, etc. Do you see a problem with that? Even if all these acts are contradictory, it doesn't matter because each person can perceive it in their own way. Now, these two ways of looking at the world are the problem you have with the generation which followed you. What I mean is, you have more in common with the generation during the Renaissance than you do with the generations which came after you. Why? Because the generation of the Renaissance still thought in terms of antithesis. You could have a conversation and say, This is what morality is, and they would understand what you're saying. Whereas the younger generation today thinks of synthesis. Let me make a further example Sue. <laughs> I told you I was glad that you're here. <laughs> Let me ask you you a question, Sue. When you were younger, and someone, a parent, a teacher, a pastor, whoever, said to you, be a good girl, did you understood what that meant? Did he have to explain what good meant? Or did you just know? You understood it? Or if you were to tell a friend, friend, I would like to be a good girl, your friend would understand what you meant by that, what good meant. Um, now for everyone, question everyone now, did the majority of you understand what it meant to be a good boy or a good girl when you were growing up? It was pretty black and white. David's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I was a bad boy. No, <laughs> You see, that's because you all think in terms of antithesis. The way you think is that A is always A and never non-A. You know what good Means. And because you know what good means, you know what the opposite, bad, means. You know that it means not to lie, not to cheat, not to steal. And if you're a Christian, it means to honor and glorify God and not to live in sin. The problem, however, is that if you were to say the same thing to a girl today, they would not understand the question. They don't get it. For them, good can mean a multitude of things and can even conflict. Why? Because their way of thinking is absolutely different from your way of thinking. They simply do not perceive the world the way that you perceive the world. Ellen. <laughs> Ellen, when you began teaching, how long ago was that? 31 years. Did you see a difference between the kids then and the kids now? I'm so sorry. Did They seem to change, though, and, and, and as time went on, I, I say that because when I was, even when I was going to school, one of the teachers I had when I graduated said, the kids are different than they were when you were there, and it was five years. <laughs> Not even, two years. Now, I know all of you are wondering, okay, why are we dwelling on this philosophical point? Does this really have any correlation to the scripture we read today? And the answer is yes. You see, for Christianity, the greatest antithetical statement is that God exists, therefore he does not not exist. God is there rather than not being there. What we read today is very similar. God is light. In him there is no darkness. The statement is a philosophical, antithetical statement. God is light, therefore he has no darkness. Because A, God is light, he is also A, he has no darkness. Because darkness is opposite of light. You see, thinking antithetically is one of Christianity's greatest assets. It's because it is an antithetical religion, we can make absolute truth claims. We can say Jesus is the Christ, rather than Jesus is a Christ. We can say sin is never righteous. We can say to be holy is to be not be unholy. The question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we present the gospel to a generation which is thinking in a way which is completely foreign to us? That is the real issue. It is simply not enough to say to someone anymore, be good, because nowadays, good can mean anything. They've taken away definitions. So the best way to communicate it is then to define the terms that they have lost. When we say good, we then need to say, this is what good means. When, they say, when we say sin, we have to say, this is what sin means. They don't just get it anymore. Thankfully, we do not have to do this alone. We have the scriptures which inform us of these things. We're not willy-nilly with our definitions. We can point to the scriptures and, if need be, to church history in order to define these terms and explain them to this generation. Likewise, it would be wise for us to press them with the way that their thinking is and show them how it doesn't actually work in reality. Morality is a great example. I'm going to give you, I've actually had conversations like this just so everyone is aware. So this is a personal experience I've had. Um, Morality. Most people will say morality is relative. This means that people can define morality based upon their own reasoning and how they personally experience the world. That's why so many of this younger generation will say homosexuality is acceptable because it's their lives, not mine. They can do as they please. Now, that kind of a statement is a direct result of synthesis and rather than antithesis, antithesis. So it is at this point that we can challenge them on the way they think. For example, if someone tells me morality is relative, I will respond with, so do you condone the Holocaust? Do you condone genocide? Every time I've asked this question. When pressed, they will say, no, of course not. Then I will respond with, well, if morality is relative then you cannot make that statement. If the Nazis want to kill all Jews, for example, then according to your relativism, why should we disagree with them, or why can you say no? They can't. They can't do it with the way that they think. Most will be pressed into a corner at this point, and will either seek to end the conversation outright, out of discomfort, or then continue with absurd claims, such as, oh, well, then they were right. I can't say anything back you see the craziness. I've had conversations like that where they end up saying, well, if my way of thinking says that, then my way of thinking must be above that. However, others will want to know an alternative. Some will want to know if it is possible then to know truth and to know morality, to which we can provide. Once we've shown them that the way of their thinking, doesn't work in reality, we can then provide them an alternative which does fit with reality, and that is the antithesis of the Christian faith. God exists. Because he exists, we are created in his image. Because we are created in his image, we are able to choose. Because we have choice, we choose disobedience and sin rather than obedience with God. Because we chose sin, we fell into death. Because we fell into death, We need redemption. Because we're in need of redemption, God brought redemption through Christ. Because God brought redemption through Christ, we can attain salvation through Christ. Because we can attain salvation, we can attain eternal life. It all goes back in full circle. It's complete. It's total. In that simple paragraph, you've just managed to show the simplicity of the truth of the gospel. Now, will that be enough? Probably not we will probably need to have more conversations on each of these points. But this is still a way of sharing the gospel with a generation which claims that there can be no such thing as truth. All I can say when I think about all this is thanks be to God for providing us a consistent way of understanding our experiences and the reality we face every day. Thanks be to God that he has given us a truth which is able to be seen throughout the generations, and which is a total, complete, logical truth. Praise God for this, because without it, we would never know anything and be left in a state of unknowing, completely separate from what we need as humans being made in the image of God. Thanks be to God for being light instead of darkness. Now this leads us to our second application point, and that's the message that God is light. Now that we have gotten over the basics of today's statement made by John, it's time that we consider what it means for us. The message they receive from Christ and the one they continue to proclaim is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is the fantastic statement that he made because, as we have seen, it provides us with a glimpse into the character of God. God is light, he is completely moral. This means that we can know morality through God because it is by him morality itself exists. He is the one who defines morality because he is absolutely moral. It means God can tell us what sin is and we can know sin and see our need of redemption. It means once we are redeemed that we can know how not to live and that we can know how to live in the light. God is light. He is righteous, just. We all desire this in some way. When we consider a murderer who kills a family, we desire justice. We desire righteousness. When we are wronged, we desire righteousness. When people we love are wronged, we desire righteousness. It is human for us to desire this because God is himself righteous. And since we are created in his image, it is natural for us to desire it as well. Thankfully, God is not unrighteous. He does not simply allow sinners to go free. Many wonder about that. Why didn't God simply forgive sins, for example? Why didn't God simply say, Okay, everyone's sins are forgiven. There's no need for the cross. No need for Christ. They're just forgiven, like that. There are probably many answers to this. But I think the strongest are that this would be against who God is in His righteousness. To simply forgive without having the debt paid would be unrighteous. Consider the murderer. If a judge simply said, I'm a loving judge, you're free to go. Our response would be anger. The same as it is with us. We are guilty. We deserve judgment. We're the murderers with blood on our hands. So what does God do in his righteousness? He doesn't simply say, you're innocent, go free. Instead, Christ comes in our stead. He takes the penalty of death we deserve. He says, I take their guilt and their debt. It is only after this that God finds us innocent. This is the scandal of the cross. And yet, here it is. In this scandal, we find life eternal in Christ. In this way, God maintains all of his righteousness. And we who are sinners are declared righteous through Christ. God is light. He is holy. The word holy means to cut or to separate. In this way, God is completely different than us in all other things. He is completely other. What this means is that he is the only one who is both infinite and imminent. He is the God who is above all else and yet is close to us. In this way, we are similar to him in that we are created in his image. In this way, we are different than him being made rather than having an infinite beginning and infinite power and glory. God is holy. When we consider these things, these are but a small portion of the infinitudes and the majesties and the glories of God Almighty. This list alone is not enough to describe what it means for God to be light. But there is one other thing to consider, and that is because God is light, we can know him. If God were darkness, it would not only mean that all that is good would be bad, but it would also mean that we would never really be able to know God because darkness is unknowable. We see this acutely when we stumble in the darkness. We do not know what is ahead of us or behind us. We would not know because we would not be able to perceive through the darkness or into the darkness. We can only know darkness because we know light. But if darkness was all that there was, we would never know darkness because we would never have something to distinguish darkness from darkness. Yet once the light has been provided, we can see the pits, we can see the traps, we can see the obstacles in our way, and we can know what darkness is. It is similar with God. If God is darkness then we can never experience Him and know Him. But as it is, we can experience Him, and we can know Him because He has revealed Himself to us, and by revealing Himself, we can know both light and darkness. This should cause within us a great joy. Think of the repercussions to know God. We can know Him. We can walk with God. We can experience God. God has made Himself known to us, I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. We live in a world of great darkness. We see sin abound. We feel the pressures of temptations, of our own struggles, our own sin. We see others who have no desire to glorify God, who is so deserving. So much darkness is in this world. All in all, this dark world could devour us in a pit of despair. Yet the despair is overcome, not because we are so great, but because the light of God is so great. My hope is that you would find encouragement here, that we would seek to live in the light of our God and desire to glorify Him in this life. He is worthy of us. He is worthy of us to continue the journey even when it might get dark in this world and shine his light by proclaiming the same message that John received and then proclaimed. God is light, and in him no darkness dwells. This leads us to our final point, that's the gospel. It is rather clear that the gospel is found here within this verse. God being light reminds us even of the words of John in, when he wrote his gospel, specifically John 1-5, through In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. The gospel begins with our origins. In the beginning was God. He created the cosmos according to the power of his word last of all he created humanity to be his image bearers because god is a god of love reason he knows can be known has personhood morality and displays chesed we can as well it is here we find sanctity dignity and worth to human life like god however we are also able to choose We could either choose to follow God in obedience into life or sin in disobedience into death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. And because of that, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. And it's because of sin that we continue to accrue a greater and greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not just a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous judge. Thankfully, God did not leave us in the darkness forever. Instead, he sent his light and spoke his word into the darkness, So that, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is by his blood we are bought and redeemed. It is through Christ our relationships can be restored. His victory in life over death becomes our victory in life over death. All that is required of us is two things. The first is repentance. We are to not live a sinful lifestyle. Instead, we are to live a repentant lifestyle, which is characterized by seeking to glorify God in our lives. We are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. We are to live according to the will of God, which is made known to us through Christ and the Scriptures, by which we know to walk and step with the Spirit. The second is faith in Christ. While it is true that we are to live according to the glory of God, we also recognize our complete and total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we do which saves us, it is what Christ has done which saves us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. For those who remain disobedient in these things, there is only judgment. Even our greatest deeds are as filthy rags before our holy God and just God. Therefore, they will face judgment for their sins. If they do not repent and place their faith in Christ, for there is no salvation apart from Christ. For those who are obedient, however, there is no longer condemnation. Instead, they are made sons and daughters of God Most High. They experience the love of God reserved only for those who are in Jesus Christ, reserved only for Jesus Christ himself. They will be glorified and become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom while they will experience the peace of God forever. My hope is that we would continue to be a people who seek to know the light of our God and seek to chase out the darkness by the power of the light of of God. Be encouraged by the message we have heard. Take heart to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that it is through Christ that this light will shine forever. Not only can we know of the light, but we can also experience the light and shine the light of Christ by proclaiming his gospel. God be praised for the glory found in Jesus Christ and the redemption given to us through him. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the light which You have begun to shine 2,000 years ago and which continues to shine to this day. And it doesn't ever get dimmer, but instead it remains there, always for us to see. And Lord, we ask that we would gravitate toward that light, that we would continue to be drawn to the light of Christ, so that it would be more Him And bless us. And Lord, this is possible because of what you have done. Because you sent the light and the life of the world, we can have light and life as well. And so, Lord, be glorified through us. And may we continue to praise and honor you with our lives. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn Great is thy faithfulness. Thank you.